Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, Director of the Insight Centre for Data Analytics with University College Cork and Deputy for European Artificial Intelligence Association and current SFI Researcher of the Year, Professor Barry O'Sullivan joins us. So Barry, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you. It's great to have My you. My pleasure. I suppose a way to start this conversation is just how, why is AI where it is today? I suppose, look, AI is probably one of one of the most important technologies that we hear about today, um, and there's a lot of, I suppose, a lot of hype around it, um, which is good and bad, um, but just tremendous opportunity, I suppose. AI grew out of, you know, it was coined as a term in the 1950s, um, where, you know, people sat around, people like Marvin Minsky and John McCarthy tried to figure out, well, you know, how could we make computers think like a human being um and it was slow progress and you know you often hear about ai winters which are basically these sort of periods where um ai was the um was one of the hot technologies and then for some reason didn't become one of the hot technologies either because you know funding ran ran out nobody could do research in it or because it sort of oversold itself and couldn't deliver um and i suppose these days it's certainly on the up and up, and I think it's on the up and up for a few reasons. Um, one is, you know, we're gathering massive amounts of data these days. You know, everybody, everything you do, you're leaving some sort of a, a data crumb behind you, whether you're using social media or you're phoning somebody or you're sending an email or you're browsing the web or you know, wearing some smart sensors or something. So there's massive amounts of data that are being gathered all the time. And you often hear people talking about the fact that in the last two years, uh, we've created more data than um, than human beings created uh, since the dawn of time, up to about two years ago, right? So, which is which is amazing, um, and you know, probably probably true. Um, but I suppose the other thing that's happened is you know certain kind of technical advances have occurred. So, you know, we all have very powerful computers at our disposal, but you know, we also. Um, have seen phenomenally powerful computers built. So there's lots and lots of data, lots of computing power. And I suppose also there have just been some really smart advances in the field of artificial intelligence that when you put them all together, this sort of perfect soup has um, allowed us to really excel, you know. So, um, you know, where, you know, 20 years ago, um, there were big wins like, uh, uh, you know, Deep Blue beating Kasparov at chess. You know, we're now talking about self-driving cars and all that sort of stuff, which is phenomenal. Um, progress in such a short period of time. Yeah, and with that huge amount of data, we have to be careful what crumbs we leave. It's almost like you have to clear your personal browser history because <laughs> you've been tracked yeah, at every point. Yeah, well, privacy is very, well. Obviously, privacy is becoming far more difficult now because um, um, if you just you know, so forgetting social media and like what we're leaving online, um, just imagine. How many data points you'd need to uniquely identify somebody? So you know, think about you know the people living on your streets or living in your village or whatever. Um, and if someone, if you knew, say, people's date of birth, and some guy come along and said, "Well, you know, I'm talking about a man, and he was born on the fourth of April, 1957," then that those two things alone probably uniquely identify that person. You know, so just with very very few data points, or you might say, if that doesn't unique to identify someone, then there's very, very few people in the locality that would have that particular gender born on that particular date. But somebody told you something else like, well, you know, and it's the person with blue eyes or the person that 
um, drives the yellow car or, you know, drives to the nearest town twice a week, then, you know, you very quickly can uniquely identify people. So the kind of, we don't need very many crumbs to, to, for people to be no longer anonymous. And that's, that's the challenge. Um, and I suppose, you know, for this reason, there's a lot of talk these days around privacy, around security, around um, uh, data protection. So what people can um, do with your data. So it's a, it's a very, very hot topic. Um, and uh, and quite a difficult one. There was, there was an experiment done in the US about two years ago. I think the privacy lab at Harvard did it, and they took two publicly available data sets. I think one was an anonymized data set for health conditions, where anonymized means that the person's name uh, and address was removed, but their gender, date of birth, and their, I think, postcode was left in the data. And then they also could access the register of electors which is publicly available in most states in the US so you you get um, so you get name address and so on um, and whether they can vote or not but if you do if you put those two things together because the date of birth and the gender are almost unique to identify people then um, I think something like 85% of people in the state of Washington were uniquely identified just in this data alone which is publicly available which is so not, not only could he identify who you were but because it was a health record they could identify what conditions you were suffering from which is kind of which is kind of embarrassing and scary it kind but, of debunks that whole thing Barry about people being so privacy concerned I suppose one has to make the distinction between how easy it is to break somebody's privacy you know just in terms of public data um, and whether someone should be allowed to. So, for example, there are some countries like Germany, for example, where you know, even if it, so, even though it is easy to identify somebody, if the if the person's intention is that they be that their privacy be respected, then it's often there are situations where it's considered illegal just to try and identify them, even though the data is available. The act of sort of um, uh, identifying the persons from de from uh, from de-identified data is. Um, is actually uh, is a crime. So, so the whole the whole question of data protection, you know, there's a European GDPR coming at us in a couple, you know, next year, um, which has got all sorts of rules and regulations about. Well, you know, if there's data about you, then someone can only use that for something for which you've given informed consent for, um, and these sorts of things. So it's really becoming uh, such a challenge. Um, and of course, you know, people talk about giving informed consent for data, but lots of times when you sign. Uh, sign up to a new app on your phone or sign up to a new service, you often um, give that consent and maybe unwittingly, you know. <laughs> so um, yeah. uh, you, you you might end up going through a couple of screens and say, well, do you know that with your data we could do the following? So yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, give, yeah. Just, give, just, <laughs> just get me there. Give, just give me the service, please. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. I find that really interesting because that, that's what we see all the time. People are, are like, oh, I'm really concerned about my privacy and they just go accept the terms. Did, I, I know very few people who read the terms and conditions. Yeah, there was some silly example at some conference or other. It, it, it could, well, it might be an urban myth, but it could, it could very well be true. Um, where you know people had to sign up for the free Wi-Fi by just uh, you know going to the thing called free Wi-Fi, and then uh, when they selected it on their phone or their computer, a screen was chucked up saying, you know, uh, click the, click I agree with terms and conditions to access free Wi-Fi, so people just click the terms and conditions and connect it to the Wi-Fi. And, you know, at the end of the conference, uh, you know, the terms and conditions were presented, you know, uh, you agree to give us, you know, to, that your firstborn child will wash my car for the, <laughs> forevermore and all this sort of stuff, you know, just just silly things, you know. Yeah. And it was very readable. It was, you know, so 10, 10 stupid things that people had to, were promising to do and nobody read it. <laughs> so, yeah, um, yeah. so, yeah, so we're, we're concerned about it, but we don't, we, we don't, we don't treat it, with, we're not even, we're not responsible you know we don't act responsibly yeah 
Do you know? Do you know one thing that I found really interesting, Barry, was I saw. I don't know if you've seen the movie Ex Machina yet. Um, oh yes, I have seen that. Yeah, fantastic movie. And yeah, I, what I what I found one of the most interesting lines I thought was when the the creator of this AI who had who was a search engine guru, let's yeah. call him that, and he he said he's asked how do you make the AI so intelligent and so empathetic and has emotional intelligence, everything. And he says, I plugged it in, I plugged it into the search engines because the search engine is almost like a pulse for the nation. And that, that for me was a real moment of an aha moment. Cause it's not just about, you know, Facebook and, and social media. It actually goes beyond to what are people actually looking for and what are they actually talking about? And it's, you know, you talked before about data that you, people give in a survey versus behavioral data, and that's mm-hmm. very much behavioral data. Yeah, so like there have been lots of examples of that kind of thing. You know, there was a Google flu trend service at one point, and what it used to do was uh, sort of map and predict where flu was um, currently active. And so it would do that basically by, well, you know, if you're sitting at home saying, well, you know, I feel kind of crap and, you know, um, I'm sneezing and all this sort of stuff. And I said, you know, uh, how, how do I treat the flu? Then the fact that lots of people were, were searching for that at a particular location gave an indication that, well, flu is in that location. Um, and, of course, you could, you know, if you, if you sort of looked at that on a map, you could get a sense of how flu was traveling, you know. <laughs> so, um, um, no, that, that, that service has been discontinued. But there are lots of these things to sort of predict what people are doing and saying. Uh, based on their um, based on search queries, um, and there are lots of services like uh, there's, there's a very nice um, there's a very nice uh, visualization called Pulse of the Nation, in fact, and um, from social media activity, I think from Twitter activity, in fact, it looks at um, what the mood of people are at different different parts of the United, of the United States, and it plots this over time. And so you get this, these nice visualizations that sort of show you that, you know, um, what time, what part, what, you know, what days of the week do people feel feel the most positive, or what time of day do people feel most positive, and which, you know, who are the happier people, people on the west coast and people on the east coast, and this is all done from, I suppose, uh, gauging sentiment or gauging mood from. Um, just from Twitter activity, so the, you know the like. Well, there's massive uncertainty in this kind of data. The the because of its sheer volume, it can be enough to give you a to give you a signal, which is very very interesting. Lots of AI systems, you know, there that we use today are basically sort of sitting on top of these very rich data sources and doing quite interesting things with them. You know, recommending a movie or um, maybe serving up an advertisement, which is you know um, people may or may not like. Um, I generally don't like it, but um, it's a big revenue business, obviously. And so knowing what you like and what you're what you might have a predisposition to um, respond positively to is um, uh, is very very possible and dare I say easy um, with large quantity large quantities of this kind of data. Yeah, and th- that leads leads us to another kind of uh, quandary, I suppose, is, is that because there's so much historical data, and, and I mentioned before, it kind of clear in a personal browser. But if you yeah. think about the, the amount of data available in the world and historical data and how concurrently the world's patterns and trends have changed where for example the the balance of male and female has changed a lot uh-huh. gender for example or even working conditions or what type of people work in what types of roles the machine learning has to start at a point of a, a 
reading the data available through a platform or B, actually taking the input from a human. And if it's taking that, that kind of data, it can't start at zero and it can't learn from today at, at ground zero. Yeah, well, I suppose, you know, we often talk about um, ground truths in, in AI and in data mining and machine learning. So the, the ground truth is, you know, what is the what is the real pattern, you know, so what is the real thing? Um, so imagine you knew exactly what someone was going to consume as a as a movie, for example. You, you, you would then build a system that would try to predict that value, but you knew what the ground truth was. So I suppose the point you're making is that we don't know what the ground truth is because, you know, people, people are changing. Um, there's possibly bias in how the data was originally gathered. So maybe maybe the data was um, was information about uh, people who went to certain kinds of schools or um, got a certain level of education, and so that's that's you know that's by definition bias because um, it, it it doesn't represent the entire population. And so the, like the effect, I suppose what, what's the the more serious issue is well, how do you deal with it in the context of AI systems? You know, you, you could be starting with a data set that's biased because it's it's old and incomplete or something, and then you're dealing with bias. You're dealing with data that you're sort of accessing in real time. And so, where does that data come from? Is that is this coming from people who tweet a lot, or people who tend to blog a lot, or people who tend to, um, you know, provide lots of data in other ways? So that you know, I regard that as a sort of a class of bias type problem. So how do you how do you deal with these things? And AI is a real challenge. You know, you mentioned Twitter, for example, and. People on Twitter tend to follow like-minded people on Twitter, for example. I know Clay Shirky talks about this ant mill where the ants just follow each other into this death mill, a death spiral, until they all just collapse <laughs> from exhaustion. Yeah, I think we, we, we tend to call those sort of filter bubbles in, um, in, in my area. So, you know, you tend to surround yourself with information. So inf- information that you receive is based on... Um, the, a sort of a personalized uh, system that presents you with data that you tend to like. You know, like if you're if you're a social media platform owner, then what you want to do is obviously get people to engage with your platform. And if you give them information that they will respond positively to, or, um, or well, that they will respond to, then obviously you know people are using your thing, and so they get to see your advertisements, your advertising stuff more often. And so. Um, if you get people to look at, if they enjoy looking, consuming certain types of data, then you know you should, you know, there's a motivation to give them that kind of data, and so all of a sudden their world becomes totally defined by that that data that um, that they will like, and so this is the classic filter bubble, you know. So if you're a take the U.S. election, if you're someone who likes the message of Donald Trump, then you'll tend to respond positively to that and engage with it, whereas if you're you know someone who to, you know, like the Hillary message, then you know you might not, you would not have engaged with the Donald Trump stuff. So you, you know, the Hillary person will get to see more and more data that's that's Hillary esque, and the person who's responding positively to the Donald Trump data will get more data that's Donald Trump based, and so they'll end up living in almost parallel worlds. You know, so that's um, that that is a problem. I did this recently where I actually cleared my browser history again to kind of go, okay, <laughs> let's start from zero. And then the problem is, of course, when you're signed into something you have a history from being signed in and it, and it's like you say it's like you go down a, a rabbit hole that brings you a certain way because that's the profile you fit or that's the ad you might have clicked on with your fat finger by mistake on your phone you're kind of going, i didn't mean to click on that ad and then you go down this other bubble and you kind of go, i didn't want to go there yeah 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 absolutely like there's a um you know, it's very hard to get back to zero, as you say, you know, um, like you were talking about a web browser, um, then, you know, clearing the 
search history. That's only one aspect of it. You know, there are things called cookies as well, of course, that sort of follow you around the place. Um, and also there's just, um, you might be logged into the machine so it knows who you are, it knows where you are, it knows what time of day it is. So it's very, very hard to start at an absolute sort of uh, completely, um, from a complete from a completely clean slate. Yeah. Actually, there's a very funny example of this recently. A colleague of mine uh, at UCC mentioned that um, uh, he got one of these sort of pull-along shopping trolleys because um, he tends to walk around the city and he um, he does a lot of shopping, you know. And uh, you know, so sort of, you, know, you remember that you know th- th- these are things that your sort of granny used to pull around with her to get the get the messages in the local <laughs> shop or something. So the uh, so and he said that after he bought this, the number of advertisements he was getting for walking sticks and other sorts of things went up to the roof, you know. So you know, as a consequence of sort of buying this product, which was a which I suppose from the from the whatever recommender system of serving up advertisements to him, um, this was a strong indicator that uh, that you know he was uh, he was a person who would need these sort of walking aids and everything. But of course, he wasn't. He was a perfectly fit guy, you know. But it's, it was kind of funny. And Barry, so I was thinking about Tay. We talked about Tay and interaction bias because this is kind of where we're going, where where the algorithm will will change. But when it, when you go to something like machine learning or chatbots, etc., there's a there's a certain bias that takes place there also. Oh yeah, like I suppose yeah. So just speaking generally about AI systems, I often call AI systems um, well those those that are heavily reliant on data um, as bias in, bias out algorithms. You know because they're only as good or they're only as unbiased um, as the data that you provide them. Now of course bias isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? So the um, but it's it's a property of of the data that's that's worth thinking about. You know where the data came from and um, and I suppose more importantly thinking about the results based on the data that you that you gave the system you know so um the um and it's important that that we understand the relationship with these sorts of things right because um uh, ultimately it gives you a, a sense of you know if an ai system is serving you a result then um one needs to understand well um how bias impacted that uh, in some way so yeah there's, there's lots of different kinds of bias you know so after you know so um you know you mentioned this talk i gave in cork a few weeks ago so i was talking about things like um sort of data biases which is so a data bias is basically you know does bias into data to begin with so the example i gave there was um you know if you're searching for cute babies in google and if you type in cute babies you'll tend to get um you know, lots and lots of white Western babies, um, and that's because uh, the alg- there's nothing wrong with the with the Google search engine in, in some respect, but it's giving you what it thinks what, what what's signaled by the data to some extent, right? So um, this is you know we tend to have lots more of that kind of baby on the internet, so uh, you know people must be looking for this kind of baby. <laughs> But there's yeah. other things like, um, so you mentioned Tay, you know, the interaction bias. So this is a, so Tay was a chatbot that learned by interacting with people online. So and it interacted with people online through Twitter. So um, so it was a Twitter bot. You know, it was a chatbot for Twitter. And so um, I think Microsoft had to, who were the producers of that, had to take it offline um, within a day because it became a, a racist, sexist, offensive chatbot because it was. Um, it was kind of learning from interactions between people who were online, unfortunately, are often much more aggressive and unpleasant than they would be through social interaction, for example. So there was, a, there, was a, there was a bias in the data because of where the data was gathered, but it was also this interaction bias because people people online were interacting with each other in a quite a negative way, which is which is kind of hilarious, you know. So um, that uh, AI systems that learn by observing our behavior as human beings 
can become really really unpleasant human beings you know yeah. so that's uh it's, it's something that's amazing and like it's a word of caution like when building AI systems because this is, this is exactly the kind of thing that we have to be very very careful about if we want to build a system that behaves you know like a an intelligent reasonable human being then unfortunately having it interact with people online isn't the right way to do it yeah, yeah. but it raises a really interesting one because I, I told you I've written a blog on this where you know the, the the shadow of the leader in a way or or the the teacher role becomes so important it's so important anyway for children and and you talked about Tay there for example picking up mm-hmm. around just around the interactions around it it just shows you the importance of you know you know birds of a feather flocking together what type of they are what type of people they are what type of values they have but but when it comes to the person teaching the machine that person's role is really important if it, if if that if that machine is going to have an important decision making role itself the the input from that person has to be key and often it's a certain type of person that works in you know that industry that that's training the machine yeah well you know if human beings are teaching computers how to behave you know through you know where the learning has been done through some sort of ai system then there's absolutely no reason why we should be training them any differently than how we train children uh, and in some sense the sensory capabilities of a of a very young child are, are far far more sophisticated than they are of a computer <laughs> obviously so you know if we're um um so with a with a stupid old computer we have to be very very careful you know um because uh you know it can't you know it doesn't have the sensing capabilities to sort of see that you know we might not be feeling very well today and that example we should maybe ignore that example because you know daddy was a little cranky today so yeah. um uh you know hu- human children can figure that out computers can't so um we should be probably far more careful in terms of how we select what it is that we teach an AI system with then um, then we would be choosing examples with a child, you know. Like yeah. computers can't understand humor. Even young children can, you know. Like the ability to to accept information and understand how it should be processed is quite a sophisticated capability that we have as human beings. Yeah. Um, and um, so you know, we, like the human being as a teacher, data data is the are the examples that we teach these systems with, and because we're starting with something that at the end of the day is just a, a very precisely defined algorithm, um, then we need to be very careful which examples we, we present it. And this is actually a very old idea in artificial intelligence, by the way. You know, people like Pat Winston back in the 70s were working on um, on how to, from a machine learning point of view, how to select good examples that um, would help an AI system generalize properly. So, you know, in the early in the early 70s at MIT, um, Blocks World was a very common domain um, for, for I suppose, uh, performing AI experiments. So the idea, so blocks world is basically exactly that. It's just, it's a world in which you have, you have square blocks, you've got rectangular blocks, you've got uh, triangles, and you're trying to train um, an AI system, certain concepts like how to build an arch. And so, you know, the, the, you know, the basic idea is that you so show some examples of things that are that you know this is an arch, this is an arch, that isn't an arch over there. That's so, and the AI system would need to figure out well how to generalize correctly from those examples. And so, if you think about how you would teach kids, you would kind of a very good teacher would carefully choose which examples to present next, so that the, so that the 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 pupil, the child would would generalize properly. Um, and if they overgeneralize, then you could give an example that would sort of rule out the thing that they thought was okay. 
Um, and so the role of teachers in AI is a very, very old idea going way back to the 70s. You know? so, yeah. um, um, but unfortunately, in, in modern AI, you know, so the AI, which is which I suppose is really just a subset of the field, but you know what we everyday in everyday life what we what we tend to call artificial intelligence is you know lots of data, lots of compute, and a and a and a learning algorithm called deep learning. You know that's what most people think of these days as AI. But but the, the role of data here is really really key, um, and the algorithm is is a thing that generalizes, um, and because you know compute power is just so. Um, it's because computers are so powerful today that um, you know we can um, in a very in, in a very short period of time we can um, we can generalize very very quickly from the data and um, this is a process that needs to be sort of thought of very carefully. So I think your point about you know the the role of a good teacher is a is a is a very smart one. I think it's a it's a very good insight and one that isn't really taken. It's one that people in modern um, AI, particularly when it's been deployed rather than the research community, but when it's been used in the field, I think people don't give it the, don't give that the thought that they should, you know. Um, and ultimately, it's a sort of, you know, it's, a, it's also related to bias. Yeah, yeah. And do, do you know, it, it kind of got me thinking about one thing is you mentioned about the child understanding humor and th- those little mm. kind of the little subtle elements that even even from country to country, from nationality to nationality, are often yeah. missed. And do yeah. you think AI will ever learn that? Um, well, you know, like uh, never say never. I think no, I think it will. I think this. Um, I suppose it depends what, what what kind of AI we're talking about. You know, if yeah. we're talking about like just take chatbots for example, so conversational stuff. I think the, um, there's a lot of work being done in conversational AI. So these are chatbots. So these automated systems that you get to chat with through text or even through speech online. Um, you know, to help you buy things, to help you, um, you know, get some service, you know, uh, buy a ticket for something or whatever. Um, and these are often culturally aware, and they're, you know, so they they know that certain phrases are considered polite, and certain other phrases are not. Um, and so th- there are lots of companies that are studying this kind, of, th- th- these sort of sensitivities. So I think, yes, you know, yes, it's already happening. You know, so particularly in chatbot, chatbot conversational systems, yeah. they do need to be. They do need to uh, converse in a way that's considered polite, and also even more sophisticated. There's a th- th- there are there are chatbots that that interact with you almost at the le- that are culturally aware, um, but also are um, aware of the informality with which you like to be interacted with. So, so for someone who tends to be quite informal, then um, I know of some companies that are producing um, chatbot AI that. Um, Will interact with you. That will learn to interact with you very, very quickly in terms of the, the you know respond to you in the same level of informality. Wow. Um, so that's that, that's very, very interesting. You know. So the, um, but a lot of the time, this is again, this is just uh, you know these are, this can be, uh, this can be done through data. You know, you 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 see examples of how people tend to speak in their emails to each other. Uh, that gives you a sense of how informal or formal they are. Uh, maybe how they respond to um, interactions from a chatbot. You know, the, the, you know how how can you um, identify sort of a positive reaction from a negative reaction? Um, so this kind of online learning approach is something that's really where where the cutting edge is in terms of this type of technology. Yeah, the thing it, it kind of raises is people think they're safe if they're a creative industry or they're 
they're doing non-rote task jobs. But like we've seen recently that the AI can actually learn its own way as well. If you give it a general set of instructions at the start, it can actually win in ways. So I'm referring to Kasparov getting beaten by Big Blue, mm. but then mm. recently there was a win in a computer game where they played a sequence that nobody had ever thought of playing before. Yeah, so I suppose, yeah, so you're touching off two, two, I suppose, first of all, just on the game playing, so, you know, your question was about game playing, but also, I, I suppose, to some extent about automation and, you know, being... Um, being as good as human beings at, at something. So um, I suppose just specifically, you know, so, so this whole area of AI systems being, uh, learning to be as skilled as human beings is something that's um, getting a lot of uh, attention at the moment. So yeah, so there was Deep Blue back in the 90s. AlphaGo is the system you're Alpha referring Go. to. Um, Thanks, man. About how to... Um, about playing Go um, and the sequence that was played in one of the games that conventional wisdom in the, amongst human beings is that you just don't play that kind of move. You know, that that's a bad move to play. But the AlphaGo system did play that because it is you know, from its fast experience. Absolutely, you know, more it, it played more games of Go than anybody, than any human being has ever played. <laughs> so it saw lots of situations that maybe human beings hadn't witnessed. Um, so, you know, this, this kind of... Um, so technology, so AI that that performs as well as humans is something that's is interesting from a game playing point of view, but it's also um, something we should take seriously in terms of automation and the impact of work. Um, there's a lot of concern around, for example, whether AI will replace certain kinds of jobs or you know what impact is going to have on certain types of jobs. Um, and what we as a society then want to do about well, how do we respond to that? Do we do we want to legislate in some way? Do we want to regulate? Do we want to simply create uh, a society that's responsive to those sorts of things? So you know, take for example, you know, um, uh, driving. So driving is is an automatable task. Um, so truck driving is the most common occupation in the United States, but truck driving can be automated. You know, we it is possible to build. AI systems that do drive trucks automatically. And so the question then becomes, well, just because we can do that, so technologically, the question is, well, should we? You know, so should we automate the truck drivers? Um, or should we, you know, we like to drive our cars, but, you know, should we should we develop those technologies that allow us to automate the process of driving? You know, these are as much ethical and societal questions as they are technological ones. And, you know, if we do automate some people's sort of jobs, and there are people being automated jobs, we see this all the time, you know, so um, like just think about how you interact with your bank you know you don't tend to interact with human beings anymore you tend to you tend to interact with them through a machine you know so um or you go to an airport um there are airports where you you know the whole process of you know checking your boarding card and checking your passport it's all done by autom- by automated systems you don't on, unless there's some problem you don't get to talk to a human being so you know there are jobs being replaced um and so the question then is, well, you know, what are we going to do with these people who are, whose jobs are replaced? Um, so, you know, many would say that that technology will create as many jobs as it replaces, and you know that that might be true. Um, um, but of course, you know, if you're a truck driver, for example, in the example I gave earlier, um, then what what jobs do we what other jobs do we give you? You know, so. Um, there's only a certain proportion of uh, truck drivers who want to be computer programmers. Um, and for all sorts of reasons, they might not be willing or able to become uh, computer programmers. So, like, what, what are they going to do instead? You know, they're going to become taxi drivers, but, you know, taxis could be replaced. Yeah, that's a huge um, and so this one. Whole issue, 
this yeah. whole issue is going to be very interesting. And I think, you know, like there, there are big questions around this societally as well. Um, like I've been looking a lot at the, a thing called universal basic income, um, yeah. which is something you often hear about in the context of automation and AI, which is, you know, um, if people, so rather than relying on work as the primary source of income for, for people, shouldn't we, as a, shouldn't we as a society be providing everybody with a basic income that's sufficient to allow them to live? Um, and so they're future-proofed against automation um, and AI, you know, replacing their, you know, replacing work. Um, and, you know, this has other advantages. Um, and I think it's, it's quite compelling. I think, I think we will have to, you know, in Ireland and elsewhere, we will have to really start thinking about, you know, do we want to create a universal basic income? And I would be a strong advocate that we do um, uh, because of the challenges that AI systems present for us, you know. Yeah, because the big one there, Barry, I, I see is technology and, you know, general wellness in the world. More people yeah. die from obesity than they do from starvation now. And then people are living longer, yeah. generally, and it's going to only get increased that. And then there's mass urbanization. So you have these kind of forces that are all concurrently happening. And then the, word, the, the one you mentioned is the, the jobs being replaced. And there are no jobs for a lot of those people. So, you know, if people are older, they usually might drive a taxi. For example, if, you know, a nixer on the way home from dropping your grandson yeah, yeah, yeah. off to school or to soccer, you might be an Uber driver on the way back. Now you can't because all cars are driverless. So what do you do? These are the big sort of societal challenges of uh, that AI and automation uh, sort of pose to us. And I think we have to, like on top of all the ones you just mentioned, the other thing is if there is mass automation of, say, manufacturing jobs, which there already is to some extent, but not, not universally, like there are still lots of manufacturing jobs occupied by human beings in China. And that's often because the cost of human work is at a level that it just isn't worthwhile automated. You tend to find that wealthier economies like Germany and um, uh, and Korea tend to have high levels of automation because the the cost of automating work is actually is more economically beneficial than 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 not doing so. And then the question is, well, what what do you do with those with those, with those other people? So if one buys into a, a scenario where there are job losses as a consequence of automation, then it has to be true that wealth has been accumulated by a very small number of people. That does massive wealth been being generated, but but because people are not working because they're automated by some robot or some system or whatever, or their job doesn't exist for all sorts of reasons, then how do they get their income? And I think this is where initiatives like universal basic income really become interesting. Now, some might sort of criticize and say, well, holy, that, holy cow, that sounds, that sounds awfully like communism, you know, but, but it isn't. Like, there's, there's ways in which these sorts of systems can be designed that are win-wins for society, for society as a whole. Um, there are plenty of examples of where universal basic incomes are, are currently in use. You know, Alaska has a has a sort of a cycle dividend. Finland is running an experiment. Utrecht, I believe, is doing this. Uh, Switzerland are going to take a vote on whether they're going to introduce such a thing. You know, so uh, people are taking this all seriously. So I think it's um, it's worth thinking about these these sort of things societally, because you know these technologies are moving at a pace, and we need to we need to sort of sit back as a as a community and think about well, where do we want things to go? There's a colleague of mine at um, uh, at, at Impact Trade Union, Niall Shanahan, and he and I have talked about these things um, at great length. And uh, I think the um, the impact of technology on society and you know the, just the ordinary worker is something that we really do need to have uh, a serious conversation about. 
Brilliant. Well, Barry, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. We could talk all night, and I think I'd love to do a part two, uh, maybe in a few months. It'd be great. Absolutely. I'd really be delighted. I'd be really be delighted. Thank you very much. Well, Professor Barry Sullivan, Director of the Insight Centre for Data Analytics in University College Cork, Deputy President for the European Artificial Intelligence Association, and current SFI Researcher of the Year, Barry Sullivan. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. So now on the Innovation Show, we welcome Dr. Basil Harris, CEO and founder of Basil Leaf Technology. Welcome to the show, Basil. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here, man. I read about you on the Washington Post. You recently won a fantastic prize, but for a phenomenal product. And I said to you when we were off air about science fiction becoming science fact. And uh, I remember as a, as a Star Trek watcher, as a kid watching Dr. Bones McCoy with his little wavy wand. Uh, being able to diagnose people <laughs> just by by waving the wand over them and it never dawned on me that that could become a reality but before we get there before we get to your product <laughs> concept it'd be great to hear a little bit about you basil sure yes uh, so uh, i'm an i'm an er doctor uh, in the uh, uh, what we call here in the states the emergency department i think it's uh, accident and engine and uh, emergency over there <laughs> right yeah uh, but uh you know, so that by day and night, that's my job, you know, uh, working in the emergency uh, room, uh, seeing patients. Uh, prior to that, I was a, an engineer uh, uh, working in, uh, in structural and materials engineering. Uh, and this, this project came across, uh, uh, came along uh, to build a tricorder. And I grew up as a, a science fiction uh, fanatic. Uh, you know, uh, uh, and uh, like all engineers are, <laughs> and yeah. you know that that concept to actually take uh, the device that was in uh, the Star Trek series, uh, the tricorder, and and try and build it. Uh, just I couldn't pass that up. Uh, yeah. What a what a uh, an opportunity to just be part of it. Uh, yeah. So I saw it as a great marriage of trying to mix engineering and medicine. Yeah, I read about your childhood, and you you were a natural curious child because this is a trend <laughs> we see throughout the show with, with innovators and CEOs and entrepreneurs that, that there's this curiosity that's there f from childhood days. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we always, uh, uh, my, myself, my, my, my brothers, my sisters, uh, we all, uh, uh, were, were very curious kids growing up, uh, tinkering with little with this and that building stuff that usually would, you know, fall apart, but <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it was fun, uh, uh just to explore. Um, and, and having that, uh, uh, that curiosity, that drive, uh, to, to just figure things out. Usually it meant, uh, taking things that were actually working apart <laughs> and then trying to put it, put them back together again, <laughs> ending up with a few extra pieces that you didn't know where they, they should go. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's how you learn, I think. And that's how, uh, uh, uh you know, you never stop learning, uh, doing things like that. Um, for this project, you know, this is, uh, this has been uh, such an adventure, uh, of learning, uh, the, the team that, that we pulled together, uh, we were all, uh, working full time in our, in our regular jobs, but all shared that, that curiosity, all shared that drive to, to, to learn. And so we just, uh, I think our, our one, uh, uh, exciting thing that kept us going is that we were so naive <laughs> that we didn't <laughs> we didn't see how big of a task this was. So we just we just solved one problem after the other 
and kept uh, and kept moving along. And it was really exciting uh, to see the, the the final results. But uh, uh, we were we weren't in any delusion uh, that we were going to win early on. We <laughs> we thought, we were still in shock. I think I told you earlier uh, when we were off the air. Uh, we're still in shock that we actually pulled it off. Yeah. So so let's tell our audience about that because uh, they won't won't be aware of the prize that you recently won. Sure. So the, uh, the the Qualcomm Tricorder X Prize uh, was was conceived to to try and bring uh, this technology from Star Trek uh, to life. Uh, but if you recall the show, the Tricorder was in the hands of Doctor McCoy on on the Starship uh, Enterprise, and he would wave it over his patients, and magically it would come up with this information. It would have the vital signs and other uh, other data. Uh, would be streaming to the device, and Dr. McCoy would read it, and 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 analyze it, and say, you know, you know, classically he would say, oh, he's dead, Jim. You know, he would come <laughs> up with the diagnosis, right? So the 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 creators at X Prize of the contest, oh, well, that's too easy, they said. So let's take Dr. McCoy out too, and you have to program him into the device as well. So for this competition, it was more than just uh, building. Uh, the technology, uh, it also had to interpret the results. So um, it made it a little bit more challenging. Uh, so when we when we put together our kit, it's more of a, a, a box of several devices in there. It doesn't have the magic wand that comes up with the, the, the uh, diagnosis like that. But it's basically a kit of, of components that anyone can sit down with uh, you don't have to have any medical uh, knowledge, any background uh, in medicine or engineering. You basically have to be able to operate a smartphone or a tablet. Uh, ours, inter- the interface on ours is with a, with a tablet, and then it, it guides you with the different medical components on, on what to do so that it can get your vital signs, it can get all the objective data that it needs, uh, and and match that with with what your diagnosis is. So. Right. So Basil, do, does the the patient's health records need to be digitized firstly? Is that what 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 needs to happen on the recipient side? So on the on the user side, uh, you the system doesn't know anything about you, so yeah. it, it's going to uh, it's going to ask you some questions, just like you would do in, a, in with a physician visit. Okay. Um, so you it starts with a couple questions. You you set up the system. It gets some some basic information on you, uh, and then it starts asking you to interact with the the components. And depending on on what's going on with you at the time and what the readings are, it's going to lead to the next step and the next step. Just like when you're in with the with the doctor's office, when I'm seeing patients and they're coming into into my uh, ER, you know, they, they, here in in the states. We have uh, unfortunate, you know, barriers to access to care, <laughs> and so uh, in the emergency department, it's not all uh, major traumas and things like that. Uh, it, there's a lot of patients that come in just for primary care type of uh, issues. Uh, so you know, they they come in with with their ailments, their uh, their symptoms. I look at their vital signs. I order tests. I try and figure out what's going on. That's that's basically what what my job is in a nutshell as, a, as an ER doctor uh, is to make diagnoses. So when we built this tricorder, we took that 
that initial knowledge base, you know, and and coded it uh, and came up with a diagnostic engine. Uh, that was the beginnings of the AI that we built into the system. And then we uh, let that AI grow. Uh, and, and that's what ultimately came up with the uh, uh, with the basic brains of the uh, of the device yeah so they're, they're the kind of modest starts but like when you see i've seen like there's a company in israel for example that has an ai that that can detect cancer cells much quicker than a human can because obviously it just reads the data and uh, can give you back a result pretty quick and when you think of something like that mixed with your tricorder you can see the potential is phenomenal Oh, it's 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 a very exciting future, I think, that we we're, we're entering. <laughs> you know, it's it's very opti- I'm very optimistic about what's uh, what's coming down the the pike. You know, this AI that we we put into this uh, system, it's just a beginning. And the way they the way the contest was was built, and we have this this autonomous unit that's giving you a diagnosis. You know, that's great for the contest. That's really fun. It was fun to build. I, I think what's going to come out onto the market is is something a little um, uh, not as autonomous. Uh, don't want to replace physicians. I don't want to replace medical providers with this kind of technology. It uh, really is to help medical providers be more efficient, uh, help users increase access to care. So uh, imagine a, a system uh, that you have in your home. You're able to, to interact with it, whether you're uh, trying to deal with some acute illness, uh, you came down ill and have maybe pneumonia or a urinary tract infection. Uh, this is a kind of device that can gather the information that's necessary, uh, help communicate that with your uh, medical team, with your primary care uh, doctor, uh, and then together, you know, you come up with that plan. Yeah. Uh, or you're managing a chronic illness. Uh, emphysema, uh, asthma, diabetes that's difficult to control. I mean, this is the type of thing that can help you manage that chronic uh, ailment uh, and help uh, help you keep it under under tighter control. Yeah, and, and with, with kind of prohibitive um, healthcare costs in the States, I mean, that's what we hear from all over the world about how access to healthcare is so expensive in the States that you're almost democratizing access to health to wellness i i hope so i hope this is one small step towards that uh you know we have we we definitely are in a, in a bit of a health care crisis here in the states where it's where it's 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 amazing to me where i i'm working uh, in philadelphia where we have these huge towers of 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 modern care and neighborhoods right next door where people can't even access it um so it, it makes little sense, uh, but that's you know in the in the developed world you know we have those unique problems. In the developing world, there are literally millions and billions of people that have no access <laughs> to any healthcare provider. Uh, so this is a type type of of technology you know that can really um, it can it can morph into different uh, different areas. Um, here in the, in the developing developed world, where where it can help increase that access, and then it can also be deployed uh, out into uh, remote areas where people don't have any any access to any provider, and link them back to 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 providers uh, that can help them manage uh, through some conditions. Yeah, and you can yeah. see Basil how you know 
if you think of access to healthcare and, and wearables and people, you know, sharing their healthcare and even Apple Health, you know, the if people are actually sharing that health data more and more and it becomes a, a central repository that's maybe open and under open APIs, and then your product can link to those, that it, it can become quite a self um, self aware machine in a way or, or machine learning and it can become more and more intelligent and spot trends much much quicker than any human can because there's nobody sitting there with this central repository of data kind of going okay well here's the typical pathway to getting a cancer here's maybe a, a, a medication or a lack of medication in in early uh, in early teens which can trigger it or not uh, and you can start spotting trends like that. Firstly, if you have the data, then it's digitized, and then you have an AI like this that's uh, that's that's analyzing everything. It's very exciting to think about that. We do have to to move forward pretty carefully in order to to assure uh, privacy uh, for uh, for individuals. Um, and then the way we've we've kind of kept our AI uh, more on a leash. And instead of letting it learn on its own, we kind of have uh, training lessons for it. Oh, <laughs> so, really? That's you know, interesting. The way that – because I, I wasn't as comfortable with just the black box uh, type of uh, – uh, and not know what, what it's doing. So um, we, we kind of have it uh, uh, more of a, um, uh, a training medical student yeah, <laughs> is, the I way so. I, is, the way I, is the way I term it. I, I think the AI is really exciting. It's it's something that is is definitely got a, a huge potential uh, in the w- in the way you described it and, and areas that we probably can't even imagine yet. Yeah. But it, you know, this is something that's going to have to earn our trust. You know, I I would love if these tricorders, you know, one I'm developing, others that are going to come down the line, they are accepted by the medical community and accepted by people to use them. I think they're going to have to really work <laughs> to earn that trust um and, and that is the the hard road now of of going through clinical trials and proving that data is actually uh coming up with the correct uh, diagnosis and it's and it's valid and it's reliable uh these are uh the less glamorous uh types of trials than than the qualcomm tricorder x prize but you know this is the necessary steps these are the things that have to happen uh, for it to really get out there and be used and trusted. Yeah, and that, that's the key piece. I mean, so many ideas are being blocked by regulation. Even Ubers of the world, for progress to happen, regulation sometimes needs to change. And it reminded me in a way of the, the story of Billy Bean, the Oakland A's coach, who brought in a new way of coaching and selecting players and, every, and, and you know that story, Moneyball. And, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and... You know, everybody rebelled against him in his own field, in in that coaches, his own coach that he had on the team, many players, uh, the industry, all the other coaches, because he was changing the way things are done. And then the Red Sox owner says to him, you know, when you do this, people go batshit crazy and they actually, (laughs) they turn on you and... You know, people are reluctant to change. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, that, that is always the biggest challenge, isn't it? It's the people, the technology is probably the easiest part. It's actually changing how people think. Changing the routine of what, uh, you know, things that have been done for, for decades in a certain way. And you, and you found a better way. Uh, but, but to get that implemented, I dream of the time uh, that I'm in the ER 
and, and someone's coming in with their tricorder and says, you know, here's my, 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 uh, my device tells me I need to come here because I have pneumonia. These are my vital signs from home. These are my results from home. I want to be able to trust that information and yeah. go to the next step, not have to duplicate. That's where we're going to reach the efficiency uh, of medical care. That, Basil, I mean, that, that for you must be, you know, often the time, you know, God forbid that you lose people. And it's usually time. It's the time and them getting to the getting to the ER, getting to the hospital. Is that really what one of the biggest elements you're solving here? I, that is absolutely the biggest uh, problem we have here in the uh, in the ERs and the emergency departments. You know, first is is an influx of patients that could really be cared for uh, in a primary care setting, and so that's clogging up the system. Yeah. <laughs> but then. Also, the flip side of people that wait a little bit too long to access uh, emergency services. So uh, there are uh, plenty of studies that show that people are 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 not acting on uh, symptoms of stroke or or heart attack really fast uh, fast as they could. Um, and in that in those unfortunate cases, they're they're missing out on on some life-saving therapies. It's something you see here as well. I mean, you see A&E and emergency ward full with, you know, even people bringing in their child with a high temperature. And I get that. I mean, I've, I've been there. Absolutely. Yes, it's, absolutely. There's a guy I know, he's a doctor in Australia, and they call him the cleaner because he, he'll come out and he'll, he'll triage the room. and he'll go through <laughs> and he'll go, you're fine, go home, give her Calpol. You're fine, go home, give right. her, you know, clean the floor. But you're doing that kind of before that step. Right, exactly. What if they had access to this information? You know, people that that don't, you know, don't have to have any medical background. You're worried. Your child has a fever. You, I get it. I, you know, that's what that's what I'm there for. Absolutely. But it's like, it, what if you had, as a parent, or if your ailing uh, elderly parent is is ill, or you're ill, what if you had access to to real, reliable information at that time, starting in the home? to help you make that decision. Yeah. You know, that is, that's the future that I'm looking for. Yeah. And I can see, I mean, when you, when you are in that unfortunate situation, when you have to bring a child in, you often get confronted with a massive queue and you don't, you actually don't want to do that. I think there's two types of parent in a way, the one that doesn't want to bring their child to the hospital because it's, it, let's be honest, it's a pain <laughs> sure. to have to go through that. And the stress of it, etc., the cue, and the act—you know—exposing your child to other potential illnesses in the in the waiting room, you know, from other children, and then the stress of that, etc. But then on top of that, the overworked staff, like you know what that's like, <laughs> right. at, at working yes. in ER. I mean, you see red-eyed um, nurses and doctors <laughs> who have been on twenty-hour shifts, and this is where I think you know what you said is key. The AI is there to help; it's not there to replace. Right, absolutely. I mean, if we if we can uh, get there, hopefully, you know, within within the next few years, we have uh, the the basic components here approved uh, to uh, uh, for for marketing and getting this stuff out there. You know, this is the this is the beginning. And like I said, you know, we're not the only ones working on this. And hopefully, this 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 trend uh, continues. Uh, and we can really, really make an impact. Uh, so the uh, it, 
20 years from now, let's say, uh, people are going to look back and in the history of books, and we're going to remember how it was in these emergency departments. But our our kids are going to be like, why did you guys do it that way? <laughs> you yeah. guys were barbarians. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And, uh, you know, you, you have to you have to tip the cap to you and the team because the X prize that, that you won was it began with 312 teams from 38 countries and you guys uh, came out top. Yeah, we're 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 uh, we're very excited by it. It's uh, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I said now, like I said before, now that was almost the easy part. Now the hard work begins. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. we have we have a clinical trial ongoing now at uh, at my hospital with with uh, just the basic components uh, of the kit, um, and we are working to get through uh, FDA approvals. Yeah, and I loved um, just to let our audience know about this. I love your 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 PR piece where uh, you guys dressed in Star Trek outfits uh, <laughs> was that was that when you were actually presenting the prototype? Uh, that <laughs> so the, the X Prize uh, uh, group uh, that was their their idea. <laughs> they yeah. had a lot of the teams uh, kind of dress up like that. It was a fun a fun session. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I don't actually have a Star Trek uh, <laughs> uniform here, but we do we do make fun of my one brother who. Who ended up with the the red shirt? <laughs> because in the show, the red shirt guy always was the expendable one. Oh yeah, that's the guy that always. Yeah, you're kind of. Going, yeah, I never saw him before. <laughs> I never will see him again. <laughs> yeah. Well, so well, that's great, Basil. Well, listen, congratulations! It's a fantastic story, and and I hope it goes all the way. Basil Harris, CEO oh. and founder of Basil Leaf Technology. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. 